Hello and welcome to another edition of Dig Deep, the podcast about sport, faith, and life. I'm Brian Bolt, kinesiology professor and men's golf coach at Calvin College. And I'm Chad Carlson, kinesiology professor and director of general education at Hope College. Coming to you again from the audio studio of Our Daily Bread, the ministry dedicated to creating and distributing biblically-based resources for you and for me and people around the world to draw closer to God. We're very thankful to be in this studio and to be able to uh, use these fine uh, pieces of equipment to help us get this information out. And we're excited about our guest today. But before we get to our guest today, Chad, uh, it's getting a little cooler here. Are you the kind of person that looks forward to winter and maybe the change in activities? Oh, yeah, absolutely. As much as I love spring, I love the winter activities too. And not just because it's basketball season. It is, and that's great, but that's not really. It's a winter activity just because it's something we do indoors. But I, I love I love being outside. I love experiencing physical activity outside in the winter. There's just there's fun things to do where we live. And there's a lot of sports that can be both inside and outside, things like basketball. There's a, it's actually a different form when you're outside. You're playing and you're battling the elements, the wind, the netless rim very often, uh, <laughs> very different kind of game than, than maybe the gym space and uh, the way that you play inside with a much more controlled environment. Any, any other inside activities that you engage in? Well, you know, um, basketball is obviously uh, a big one for me in the winter, and that's that's certainly uh, winter is the formal season for uh, for basketball, for organized stuff, and all that sort of thing. I I love playing indoor soccer too. It's an indoor activity, obviously, and it's played oftentimes in the winter. It's just it, it's great. I love it. I can't get enough of it. My kids played indoor soccer, and one of the great things about that is they have that barrier that goes all the way around. The game never stops somewhat like outdoor soccer, but the game really never stops because it never goes out of bounds. And the best part is any parent that attends can't be heard. That big barrier, <laughs> they're screaming, they're they are banging on the glass, but inside those kids can't hear a thing. It is and such a great thing. All youth fantastic. sports should be played within a cage like We should that. have a cage, yeah. a barrier, a glass barrier, Sound or something like cage. that. It'd be perfect. Absolutely. Yeah. So I'm excited to get to our guest today, and we're using all of our time to banter back and forth and talk about indoor soccer. So let me transition here quickly to introduce Dr. Art Remillard. He is an associate professor of religious studies at St. Francis University in Pennsylvania, fairly near to Pittsburgh, and I think Pittsburgh may come up in our conversation just a little bit. Uh, also an author of uh, a book coming out called Bodies in Motion, A Religious History of Sport, which kind of alerted us to him and some of his other writings as well. He has an interest in sport. Art, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a delight to be talking with you today. Well, it's great to be able to have this opportunity to hear a little bit more about you and also about your work. Can you catch us up just a little bit on your history uh, as a person that's been interested in sport, but also the work you do at St. Francis? Sure. Well, I'll start with that first part, which is uh, I... I I like to say that I got interested in this because I was trying to make sense of of the discipline of religious studies, and the language of sports was familiar enough for me to do it. I um, had went to graduate school in, uh, at Florida State, and I arrived there in 2000, and I was introduced to a, a line of thinking and thinkers that really shook up how I understood this thing that we call religion, from, you know, Emil Durkheim to Victor Turner and uh, Eliade and the rest. 
And just to kind of make sense of it in my head, I started to apply sports terms to it. You know, collective effervescence, for example, from Durkheim. I mean, that, that makes total sense if you're at Florida State and you are at a football game and, and they score a touchdown, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I just sort of did it as a way of getting these ideas down in my head at first. Uh, and then I got interested in the mascot uh, down at Florida State, which is the Seminole, right. and just the the history of of contest between um, people who thought it was an inappropriate symbol and those who who thought that it it, it was you know a, 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 an appropriate symbol of the football team, and so I got really interested in that, and I studied it, and I saw the complexities of it, and I talked to different people, and I ended up that was the first published article that I put out, and so I just I just sort of did that as a side project, because at that point I was writing uh, a book about civil religion in the American South, specifically after the Civil War. Um, And so I went full down that track. I I published a book uh, in 2011 on it. And at that point, I had just written a couple of little things on religion and sports to the point where I realized, first, I really enjoyed the topic. Um, And secondly, there's an audience out there people are, are, are interested in this. Um, probably one of the most read things that I've done, you mentioned Pittsburgh. It was right before uh, the Steelers season a couple years ago, and I just wrote something about the kind of religious dimensions of Steelers Nation. And, and these things just automatically, I think, reach a broader audience than when I'm writing about civil religious discourses of the post-Reconstruction South. And so I kind of liked um, having a topic that I could speak broadly and generally about, and uh, it's it's just sort of taken off from there. So that's, I mean, that's kind of the thumbnail sketch of, of how I got to this place in, in my kind of writing life. So, Art, when you, when, you, when you talk to folks who deal with religious studies like you do, uh, that sort of discipline, that sort of department, uh, and we relate it to sport, one of the, the main questions that comes up is, is sport religion? Is sport like a religion? Is it religion? Is it folk religion? Is it civil religion? What are the discussions like within your field regarding sport and that particular question? Right. That's the one that comes up first. When I'm talking to, to general people, you know, this is the thing that comes up. And, and a lot of kind of the first wave of discussions about this, you know, I'm thinking of somebody like Joe Price in his uh, volume uh, from season to season. A a lot of things focused in on that question, like how should we understand and categorize this thing called sports, because it looks a lot like religion. Um, And and so that discussion is an intriguing one. It's one that I use in the classroom, and then it's one that I'm really trying to push away from in my own scholarship. And there's there's a there's a few reasons for that but principally i think that it's i think for me it works better to say that there are ways in which sports act in characteristically religious ways this is an insight that i picked up from david chittister um to say a religion at least in our context um it it can perhaps force the overstretching of a category of analysis it conjures up institutions um, and kind of either, you know, these are often more Western-framed categories of religion, 
And so I want to sort of direct the conversation away from that and instead look at this and say, here's an example of the ways in which people act in very creative and innovative and unique ways to declare and protect something as being sacred and special and set apart. And, you know, here's how they do it, and here's why they do it. Um, so my preference to kind of put a, put a, you know, to go full circle on this is to say, you know, the discussion of whether or not this is a religion is one that I'm not as interested in. What I am more interested in is how have people interpreted and understood and experienced this through time in different places and different, different contexts uh, using kind of religious frames of, of, of reference. That, that's a great answer, and it seems as though that, that gets beyond sort of this, I don't know, it seems like a little bit of a, a tavern-based question, right? You're asking the religious studies person who you're out, you're out for a meal with, what do you talk about re- regarding sport? Is sport a religion? Is it not? So I, I, I certainly appreciate that, that insight that you've provided. You've done some work on the American South. Yeah. In, in what ways have you seen um, these connections between sport and religion uh, arise throughout that, that, that geographic area? Yeah, that's a great question. And so, I mean, the, the, the South has a very unique sports culture. And originally, when I started working on this book, I was going to have it more regionally focused, but I've decided to kind of um, branch out. And one of the topics that, that I started with when I, when I uh, was writing this book was Jack Johnson. He's the boxer, the famous boxer from the early part of the 20th century who became the uh, heavyweight champion. And he was African-American. And in many ways, he he was he set the he set the stage for Muhammad Ali. I mean, he was Muhammad Ali Ali before Muhammad Ali. And in many ways, he was very brash. He was very outspoken. He was very talented, and he liked to kind of flaunt convention, you know. And and to the point where you know, when he married a white woman, there was a movement uh, from within the South to have a constitutional amendment banning interracial marriage because of Jack Johnson, you know, I mean, uh, so I've been interested because Jack Johnson was from Texas, but he didn't, he didn't have his sort of championship career in the South. Um, the big match was in Reno, Nevada. Um, but the discussion of Jack Johnson was fascinating because it was, it was so much about the values and norms that were emerging in, in the kind of Jim Crow era and the ways in which different populations were responding and reacting to Jack Johnson just fascinated me. And so far as whites saw him and his presence in a ring, especially facing off against a white man, I mean, just the the presence of a white person and a black person in a sporting venue going head-to-head in this sort of equal setting was something that really put white Southern nerves on edge. And, and 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 not just in the South, but it was it was nationally and even internationally. There was there were always these these sort of commentaries on you know what is this doing? Is this is this debasing humanity by doing this? Um, and then then you go inside of the, the black community, especially when he wins and he takes the championship and he and and you know he beats Jim Jeffries and he trounces Jim Jeffries in front of a hundred thousand people. I mean, he becomes the standard bearer. He becomes a hero, and so it, it reveals to me. Uh, very 
deep understandings of, of, of race and how these things were not simply laws. They were sacred ideals um, that, that, that shaped so much of American, American life. And so, you know, that's like, this, it's kind of like one example of, of a way in which I think a, a sporting culture has uh, developed in the American South uh, in, in a, you know, in, in a region that sometimes is depicted as being isolated, but here it is, they're, they're kind of picking up on national and international conversations through the medium of sports. We're speaking with Art Remillard, a professor and uh, sport enthusiast in some ways, at least in terms of his scholarly work. And I have to confess, uh, Art, when I was looking up some of your work and I found that article that you referenced on the Pittsburgh Steelers, uh, I got a little sidetracked by Pittsburgh Dad. Mm. Uh, I don't know if any of our <laughs> listeners are familiar with Pittsburgh Dad, but I saw a lot of myself, sadly, okay. in Pittsburgh Dad. I'm much more of the Detroit Lions dad. But just the connection that he feels and, again, trying to hold on to something that he believes to be true and maybe even form uh, a, a bit of a culture around his Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, can you talk a little bit about, as, you, as you're talking about the South, we, we think almost immediately less about the teams and more about the culture and the fanaticism of sport. Can you talk a little bit more about how you've uh, just observed that culture in different places? And you could talk about Pittsburgh or the South. Sure. I mean, we'll start in Pittsburgh. And I think, to me, one of the interesting things when you start to study sports is the way in which sports defines region sports defines place and uh, these things do this kind of work of giving us a local regional identity so you're watching pittsburgh dad and you can chuckle because it's it's so recognizable and that's the you know that's what humor is it's got to kind of have some sort of connection some sort of record something that we can uh, look at and see a bit of ourselves and and the the kind of fanatical response, the overreactions, the jumping up and down and these sorts of things. And, oh, and then, there's the, <laughs> then there's the lingo, you know, I mean, the, the, the shirts, when you go to Pittsburgh, they have shirts that say just one word, yins, <laughs> and it's in black and gold, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, see, this is such a, a kind of marker of identity that people wear proudly, and it's, I mean, part of this is a class-based thing. You know, when I was growing up, I grew up in this area, and the teachers would berate a student if they used yins in the classroom. Mm-hmm. They said that, right? And and now it's like we're we're putting that on our sleeve. I mean, literally, and and saying, you know, this is this is who we are. And then that gets tied in to all of the images and all the memories of football. I mean, I think one of the interesting things you know about the, you know, the, the immaculate reception. Of course, Franco, Franco, Franco Harris. Harris. Yeah, right. Everybody knows that. You know that without even having seen it, because if you go to the Pittsburgh airport, you have a a a a, a, a um, little you know mock-up of him, like a little statue of him, right, catching the ball right next to George Washington, right. <laughs> So, like, you have father of our country, father of Steelers Nation, right next to each other, and there isn't a Pittsburgher who walks by that and sees any irony in it. You know? <laughs> no, and if we had to reduce space, I think George would probably be removed. <laughs> exactly, right? But what was interesting to me is in looking back, I mean, it was a big win, right? It was a big win, but it wasn't that big of a win. 
It became a bigger win by the end of the 70s when you have four, four uh, Super Bowls. And people start to look back and reinterpret that moment as being kind of a break in time, right? That there was before the, you know, the Immaculate Reception when, you know, the Steelers weren't that great. And then there was after and there was a dynasty. And, and, and that's, the kind of, um, that's the kind of creative work that happens when, when people kind of collectively and individually make these sorts of things sacred. I mean, it's the same thing with the terrible towel. You know, the terrible towel, people, you know, people wrap their children in it. Whenever you have a loved one <laughs> pass away, they put it on top of the coffin. I mean, this, this object is meant to really put an emphatic exclamation point on key moments in a person's life. And it's something you wave at a football game. And again, it starts as a fairly ordinary kind of just promotional idea, and it becomes a phenomenon. And, and so the way in which these things, again, define region, I think I can see it here in professional sports when I lived down south. I mean, you know, I think Chad and I have been talking about Penn State. Penn State's a big deal around here. There's just no Absolutely. question about that. It's a big but deal when, everywhere, Art. It's but a big it deal everywhere. Very Where? Penn. Penn something, yeah. <laughs> right. uh, it, it, but when you go down south to those SEC schools, and, and I know, you know, they have their motto, I think. It's just different, or whatever their motto is. But it really is. I mean, there's, you know, when I was at Florida State, there was a uh, RV that was rumored to have costed a, a million dollars. Hmm. <laughs> like, and it was just packed out in FSU everything. Um, you know, people, again, they sort of root their sense of family, uh, their sense of belonging around this game of college football. There's a great book from uh, the early 2000s by Warren St. John called Rammer Jammer Yellow Hammer. Mm-hmm. And he uh, follows he follows the Crimson Tide for a season in, a, in an RV. And, and it's such a good... I've used it in class. It is such a good look at fan mania. And what I love about that book is it, it, it circles around a question that I think all of us who are interested in sports ask, which is, why do I care? And I just love the preciseness of that question because I think all of us who have been involved in sports have gotten to that point where they, they look at themselves and say, what? You know, like, what is this? Like, the first time my now wife saw me as I was watching a Penn State football game, she was like, who, who, are, who, who precisely are you? And who did I marry? <laughs> <laughs> because I've never seen this, you know, jumping up and down. Like, I, my oldest brother... I don't know if I have ever actually hugged him, except for one time, 2005, Penn State beats Ohio, Ohio State. State. I was at that game. Yep. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the sack to end the game. Yeah, absolutely. We Tom, were literally hugging, yep. and that's the only time. <laughs> <laughs> Brotherly <laughs> intimacy right there. <laughs> right. And so it, it makes me think about, you know, the, the root of the word fan, fanaticus, which, which you know, has its, its, its origins in the phantom and the way in which people would pass by the temple and be unusually captured by it. So it's, it's like, it's a, you know, the root of the word fan means to be possessed by a local deity. Hmm. And so, like, that sense of possession is something that is part of the thrill, is part of the novelty of sports, but then it's just, it's, it's, it, it can bring out the not-so-best part of myself, um, and, and certainly, you know, others. You, you think about the ways in which um, rivalries can can get ugly, 
you know, uh, the Alabama-Auburn uh, rivalry and the, and the, the fellow who, who poisoned the tree, uh, the famous uh, tree yeah. there in, 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 right. in Auburn. And it's just like, what, what, you know, what, what is going on here? Um, and, and, you know, I'm, I'm sure we could uh, talk all day about the, the excesses and the ways in which fandom can pull us into these, these, these competing places of striving to be our best selves and then, then, then falling into being our worst selves. So let me follow up on that just a little bit, Art. Yeah. Um, the, this mania, I've, I've spent some time living on the fringes, well, I'll call the fringes of, of Steeler Nation, and also mm-hmm. I would say uh, smack dab in the middle of a Penn State-Pitt rivalry that uh, the Penn State side is not willing to admit as a rivalry in some <laughs> sense, and we've got these, <laughs> these interesting feelings that are unique in some sense because they're unique to that particular region, but they're also not unique in that they're in some sense ubiquitous, at least across our country. I'm thinking about all of this, too, as we're in the midst of a football season, especially one that, uh, that is building, as they all do, building in intensity, building in rankings and validity and, and all of these things. Um, from a seasonal perspective, you know, with, with football in the fall leading into winter. Uh, and I know that what you're studying is, is more than anything sort of the, the social aspects, the narrative, you know, of sport and religion. Uh, you mentioned earlier some sociologists, some, some mythology scholars. But I wonder if we can get normative just for, for a moment. What are we to make of some of this excess, especially when you mention uh, Warren St. John, and, and, and he, he gives this really cool story of of a couple who have to make a decision between either attending their daughter's wedding <laughs> or going to an Alabama football game on a particular fall Saturday. And mm-hmm. I think they tell their daughter, um, we'll call you after the game. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. what are we to make of this? Yeah, I, I wish I could tell you. And I, and I think a lot about this. I think a lot about this. Again, in my own life, you know, um, where are my priorities? You know, what's important to me? And do my behaviors match my priorities? And I think about that a lot with, with, with college football because, you know, we're, we're all aware of the excesses. I mean, leaving aside concussions, leaving aside CTE, uh, leaving aside the damages that can be done on the football field, uh, the amount of money that is swirling around this sport that seems to enrich everyone but the people at the center of the action. Uh, you know, I know, I know they get the, they get their colleges paid for, and that's not a trivial thing. But, geez, Saquon Barkley couldn't capitalize off of an incredible amount of fame that he had generated uh, off of his off of his skill and ability. And I and I think, wow. And and we prop up these ideas. I mean, Taylor Branch's work on this, I think, has really shown how this category of student athlete. Um, has been mythologized, but it's it's you know originally in in place to avoid workers paying workers comp, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and and so you know there there are all these issues that I think we are blinded to when we refuse to look beyond the kind of uh, the mythological fog, and I think that that's that sometimes has to be you know we have to force ourselves into those places. You know, a couple of years ago, I was at the NCAA, and one of the talks that they, they had us listen to, uh, he said, you know, you out there need to do two things simultaneously at the same time. You need to be out there championing, championing uh, college athletics, you know, sh- explaining to people what the importance is for, for, for building character and cohesion and teaching lessons that will, will help a person throughout their life. And you have to be our biggest critics. You have to be the ones coming back telling us the things we don't want to hear. 
Um, and I think that that should just be the, the norm for sports uh, across, is that we've, we've got to be willing to celebrate and criticize uh, equally and vocally all at the same time. And when you tell those stories, Art, I can just hear the twinkle in your eye. You're, <laughs> you're loving this uh, phenomenon call, called fanaticism mm-hmm. in whatever way that it reveals itself in any part of the country. And yet there's that pull, that tug of conscience where we wonder what's going on here and have I been duped? Am I moving in a direction that somehow uh, I need to pull away from? And it's in that space that we, we like to have these conversations about sport because uh, I think there are easy answers on both sides. It's almost like the easy answer of calling sport a religion. It's, mm-hmm. it's uh, important to sort of bring up and then dismiss fairly quickly so that we have an opportunity to get deeper into these conversations and really root out what does our faith, what does Christianity have to say to this particular uh cultural phenomenon. And I'm wondering, uh, as a person that's partway through, I think, your your book coming out, are, are there some insights in there that you have started to uncover that help the listeners begin to sort through this double-edged sword of sport? Well, let's see. I think that probably one thing is, is that it's not new. And, and, I, and I sometimes think that we will look at our current era and say, well, this, is, this, this, this has gotten out of control. Um, but there's this long going back for, for as long as people have played sports. There's this bifurcated sense of, of uh, what sports is. Is it something that is uh, value-giving? Does it add something to the human experience? Or is it a needless distraction? I mean, John Winthrop himself, you know, the Puritan, uh, uh, he had this. He had the same issue. You know, he c- com- coming out of a Puritan context. Uh, you know, he had he had read the stories, uh, and there's so many of these sort of conversion narratives where somebody is pointing to a game as being like their low point and their most sinful. That they were so immersed in a game hmm. that they lost sight of you know what really mattered in life. And so that was you know a common kind of theme in conversion narratives. So John Winthrop was familiar with this. But he was also kind of expressed a sense of, of, of sorrow at not being able to kind of participate in the joy that games bring. And so, you know, the Puritans, which oftentimes, you know, get, get kind of treated as being, you know, just stoutly opposed to sports, they, they, were, they were, you know, in this sort of same thing that we were doing now. Like, how can we do this to bring value? And how can we do this in such a way that it doesn't pull us completely in and, and, and make our top and only priority this game, um, but rather use this as a vehicle to really kind of um, experience what, you know, Paul Tillich might call ultimate concern, you know, or, or, or have those sorts of um, connections. And so I think to me that's probably something that I've, I've, Notice that there is always these kinds of moral and spiritual questions attached to it and judgments made, um, both positive and negative. And, and, and sometimes it's surprising. You know, sometimes it's surprising. I'm, um, I'm, I'm writing about Tom Milneau, uh, who's a former slave, 
who uh, went over and, and had a fantastic boxing career over in, in, in England. And the hero makers, the, the ones who were making them heroes, was, uh, you know, were, were these white journalists who just thought that this was the most fascinating you know, thing, that, that he was such this uh, American hero coming over to England you know, right after the, the revolution. Um, and so you know, those, those, those sorts of surprises, sports can, sports can surprise you. Sports can uh, cause people to you know, cross boundaries, again, to get back to Jack Johnson. There was a kind of prohibition of blacks and whites boxing in the early part of the 20th century. Of course, prior to that, it was a little bit more common. But like the sports fans were like, "Geez, but we really want to see the best boxers in the ring," <laughs> you know. And so it opens a door um, to start thinking about questions of racial equality um, that that I don't know were happening. Um, you know, um, uh, just sort of. Um, uh, well, yeah, I guess I'll just end with that. <laughs> You've talked about sport now, Art, as uh, yeah. historically having value in, in two different ways, really. And I think it's in both of these ways we've at times been uneasy with um, and also at times sort of embraced. And I'm talking about sport as a vehicle, a vehicle to promote um, other things, specifically social issues. This has occurred throughout the history of sport in the United States. It continues to occur today. And then there's also... Uh, this way in which sport has sort of its own inherent value and attraction that when we're participating, we are at play, for instance, we are uh, enjoying the kingdom at hand, uh, for instance. And so sport has this this unique sort of dual thread of of purpose in, in some sense. And I want to bring this to, to, to the, the current day, the work that you're doing at St. Francis, the work that you've done as faculty athletic representative, uh, the work that that sport potentially can play on a college campus. I wonder if you can provide some of your insights related to how you see that in, in your role at, at St. Francis, um, a school with a particular uh, um, religious slant to it. There are a number of schools like that uh, in the United States. And um, you know, how do you, how do you navigate sport as a vehicle and also sport as something that has some real intrinsic value to it in itself? Well, how about I start with this? Uh, you, you mentioned I'm the faculty athletic representative, which means I'm, I'm the kind of liaison between a- academics and athletics. And so I spend a lot of time just kind of being down in athletics, going to practices, talking to coaches, and just being present. And one of the things that I've come to discover is that the best teachers on this campus are down in athletics. Hmm. And I'll say why. They don't give grades. I have this long-standing kind of pet peeve against grades. I think that they're a barrier to learning because I think there's an intellectual idolatry that happens around grades. That is to say, the grade becomes the object of fascination, not learning itself. And we're all educators, and we are all educators because we have a love of learning, because we understand that learning transforms. We understand the power of knowledge and synthesizing ideas. And that's what we want to convey. And so what we want is to have a classroom setting where there is a strong and entrenched growth mindset. Oh, we don't understand that yet? Okay, let's keep working at it. Because that's exactly what the sports mindset is. I mean, it's a total growth mindset atmosphere. You never have a coach who is coaching a hurdler, and the hurdler, you know, hits a hurdle, and you say, oh, well, you know, I guess, I guess this isn't your thing then, right? Or I guess you just can't hurdle. 
No, right? You, you, mm-hmm. you keep working at it. You keep developing it. And in sports, you understand that all of life is a practice. It's a practice. It's about committing yourself and repeating something until you get it right. And then once you don't have it right anymore, you go back and you do it again. I mean, golf is a great sport for that, for teaching that lesson, that you can go out one day and you can be hitting every drive and dropping every putt, and the next day nothing is staying on the course. (laughs) You You nailed it. Right. right. (laughs) And so to me, that's the thing that I want to learn from, and I, I, I've brought a lot of lessons back just from going and observing practices. I always say this to my faculty friends, don't go to a game, go to a practice, hmm. because that's where you see the learning happening, hmm. and that's where you're going to start getting ideas. And so, like, I collaborate with my coach friends all the time about how to motivate, about how to get people, you know, interested in things and stuff like that. So, like, the value that sports adds to a college campus to me is, is that. Mm-hmm. Um, but of course, yeah, I mean, there's, there's always when you're, you're working in these sorts of situations, there's always going to be downsides. You know, I myself was a student athlete. I ran cross country and track and my last year was miserable. You know, I mean, I had had some you know, health issues and just, you know, the general, I'm at the end of my college, um, um, life, you know, what's, what's, what's next, you know, I, I had uh, just this kind of like backstory, but when I was 18, well, actually when I was 17, and I was thinking about, you know, what do I do after high school, I decided I didn't want to go to college, so I joined the Marines. And so I had a, a four-year gap there where I was, you know, traveling the world and, and uh, you know, in the Marine Corps. And then I, I sort of thought, okay, this will give me the time to figure things out. And then I went to college, and after four years, you're kind of confused and everything else. And, and I'm running track and cross-country, and my team was very good at that point. Uh, we had our top runner ev- actually eventually went to the 2008 Olympics in the marathon, Brian mm. Sell. Wow. Um, you know, a very, I mean, very impressive runner, and his story is magnificent. Um, but, like, I just, my heart wasn't in it anymore, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't have that same fire, that same passion, that same drive that I had had a couple years before. And um, I, I see that in student-athletes. I see that in student-athletes who get to the end of the road when a time where they thought they should be peaking, when instead they're just out of gas. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's something that I'm trying to, to deal with. It's something that I'm, I'm, I'm working with, with, with you know, coaches and student-athletes, too, you know, what kind of steps can we take? Um, but I think that, the, that the, um, the schedule that you have to keep to be a student-athlete, even, you know, again, I was, you know, a student-athlete in the mid-'90s, I think, it's, I think it's, a, it's a more packed schedule. There's very little white space on their calendars um, because we're just constantly adding this and that and the other thing, and, and, and it's that kind of overburden, I think, catches up to some people, and you can see that kind of burnout coming. And so, you know, those are, those are just kind of the uh, push and the pull that I see in kind of small examples, but of a you know, broader issue that I think we, we probably have all encountered working at colleges and working with athletics. And that rings true for both Chad and I as well, working in the classroom and also going out and working with student-athletes. We see the back and forth. We see the development. We see the regression. We see the different motivations in the classroom and then out on the playing field or the practice field. And all of those are helpful insights as we try to 
sort through what is best what is the how can we uh, play sport in a in a situation that helps human thriving and that's a lot of what we're always asking ourselves as we work with our students and our student athletes thanks so much for starting to show us a little bit of the things that you are thinking about on a daily basis it's been fascinating we could go on for a long time but uh, we're getting near the end of this particular podcast, and we always end these interview podcasts with what we call the speed round. And we, you started to give us a little bit of an insight to your interests already, but we want to dig a little deeper, try to get uh, sort of your initial response or reaction to a number of different questions, and just give us a quick answer right off the top of your head. We'll let you revise and edit it if it's the wrong one. You know, it's that sort of question and then we'll we'll just kind of keep moving in that direction chad and i will tag team a little bit chad we'll start with the first question all right first question are, are you ready i'm i'm in the zone okay all right yeah. so that's a that's a that's good perfect. answer to the first question <laughs> here's the actual first question all right your favorite sport favorite sport distance running no uh, favorite sport all right no, no, <laughs> bring it i'm just I, I was hoping you'd say golf and i could have the same response to that no i that's why okay so why running why running um, I've participated in it since I was 16, 15 years old, and it is a way in which I, I define myself and the world around me. I met my wife through running. A lot of my best friends are, are through running. And uh, when I think about some of the best memories of my life, uh, running is in some way or another connected to it. Awesome. So I think I read on your website that you have as a goal to complete a marathon in every United state uh, in the country. Is that correct? It's a goal. It's a goal. It's, I think I think I hit the pause button on it because I've hit the states that I can drive to, and I, I don't know that I'm I'm ready to sink the resources into flying to do these. So I well, let's know. go ahead and spend some of your money. What are the <laughs> next three places that you would say I really want to run there? California. I absolutely want to go to California. There's one that goes through uh, the redwood forest, and so that's one that I absolutely want to do. Mm -hmm. um, Alaska, just because. That seems like a fun one right. to do as, as well. And let's see. I don't know. A third one. A third one. Is there something out there? I feel like Hawaii is calling you. Hawaii, yeah, Hawaii is definitely I was going to say Michigan. <laughs> I, did, I did Michigan. Oh, you did, I did Michigan. A, I, did a, I did a wonderful trail race in Michigan near Hell, Michigan, yes, actually. Yes, Hell, right. Uh, yeah. Yep. yeah. Run yeah, straight yeah. to Hell. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. It was right past there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Art, favorite team? Favorite team? Um Penn State Nittany Lions. Uh, well, I'm yes. sorry. I'm sorry. Let me. Oh, wait. Can oh. we can we edit that? No. <laughs> yes, I mean. Sorry. Sorry. You could definitely fix I, that. I, I, I understand. Yeah. You go ahead and confess. Quiet. Favorite team: St. Francis University Red Flash. Ah. Okay. Well said. Got it. Well said. Well said. Well, based on that first answer, I have a, a follow-up. Yeah. Um, and this is a question that sort of, in some sense, haunts those of us that have watched Penn State football over the last decade plus. Yes. Joe Paterno's legacy. Positive or negative? Oh boy! I I here's here's that's a tough one. That's a tough one because I have to go both and on that one. Okay. Hmm. Um, I just don't think you can escape it. The the terrors, the horrors of that are what they are, and I think that Joe Paterno would be the first one to say, "Don't make me your hero." Hmm. Um, you know, I followed that very closely. And the thing that the biggest criticism I have is is that a crime story became a sports story. Um, and when it became a sports story, it became about rivalries. 
and we lost the very real human tragedy that happened here. Um, I think that most clear-headed people can say Joe Paterno should have done more. Hmm. I, I just I think that 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 is is, is a clear one to me. Um, I think that's a great I, conclusion based on what we know. Uh, yeah, 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 based on what we know. Um, but but um, you know I I also am am hesitant to just completely you know erase him because he did so much good for that university. Um, and he, he, he gave so much to that university, um, and, and he did a lot for a lot of people um, o- over the years. And so to me, it's, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just live in the gray, and to me this is one of these gray things that I think remind us that we're, we're you know, Martin Luther's formulation. We're, we're both sinner and saint at the same time. Mm-hmm. And I can't imagine that there's any other way really to answer that question. It's mm-hmm. uh, w- It was supposed to be a speed round and, and we gave you kind of a tough one there. Way to go, Chad. Yeah, that slowed hey, it down uh, a little a bit. A Penn State fan can handle it. Ground to a halt. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this one is not going to be as fast unless you just go ahead and, and let her fly. You're a student of history. Really, yeah. you like to go back in time. If you could go back in time and put yourself in any sport environment, as far back as you want, you can go to 776 B.C., where would you put yourself in history to be able to experience what's happening in sport? I've already mentioned this. July 4th, 1910, Jack Johnson, Jim Jeffries, Reno, Nevada. Wow. Yeah. You yeah. would put yourself ringside at that Oh, particular. I would be ringside, yeah. right next to Jack London, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what a spectacle that must have been. Do you watch uh-huh, boxing yeah. today? I don't. And and boxing and baseball are two sports that I love the lore of, I love the history of, but I don't watch. Like I will on November 21st when Creed 2 comes out, I will be first in line because boxing movies are the best sports movies hands down. Science has proven it. Um but like I I couldn't tell you who the heavyweight champion is right now. That's uh, we're, the we're hesitating yeah. as well. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> All right, I, all right, let me get to the next one. And this is the last one from our speed round. So I'm going to ask right. for maybe a two, three sentence answer. Your upcoming book is is titled Bodies in Motion. Why that front title? Ah. Because my the basic theme that I'm saying is is that the religious substance of sports, that is to say, the, the ways in which religion works through sports, happens when we see bodies in motion, when we experience these sort of uh, discrete acts that are, you know, throwing and jumping and running, and then we act to interpret them in a way that elevates them to mythological status. So it's about, it's about the experience of witnessing bodies in motion. And we so look forward to getting uh, that book. And we also thank you very much for being on this podcast, uh, Dig Deep, Sport, Faith, Life. Uh, I don't know if you know about it, Art, but in a little bit less than a year, Chad and I will be co-hosting the Second Global Congress on Sport and Christianity. It comes up in October of 2019, and we just want to officially invite you to come if you're able to make it. Wonderful. I will absolutely look into that. And I really appreciate you inviting me onto the show. It's, it's an absolute delight to talk to you.